All right, I wonder if you turn with me, please, uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I fell in Jerusalem, and uh, I broke my leg. That's why I've had the problem ever since. Oral Roberts wasn't there, and Peter and John weren't there, so I've had to put up with it ever since. As you know, we have two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. There must have been at least a third letter that he wrote to them that we don't have. Because in the first Corinthian letter, he said, I wrote unto you in an epistle. But we don't have that one. You say, suppose we found it. What would happen? Nothing. We have in the Bible all things that pertain unto life and godliness. It's not a revelation of everything God knows, but it's a revelation of everything he wants us to know for the present. But um, I want you to turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a very interesting chapter in that it ends where the Christian life begins and it begins where the Christian life ends. In fact, you can read this chapter backwards as well as forwards. If I can find it here, I think I can. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this one we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so, being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that is wrought us for the selfsame thing is God. God is the one that put this groan in us. He's arranged it so we're never going to get too comfortable down here. You know, I suppose we have some folks here tonight. You came from Michigan. You sold your place up there, and you come down to Albuquerque, and you plan to live here 125 years. And, but uh, after you've been here two or three years, we'll put you in a pine box with a lily in your hand and ship you back. <laughs> he that has wrought us for the self-same thing is God. God's put this groan in us so we'll never be too comfortable down here. Uh, therefore, we're always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Now, this is a very interesting word, verse, the next one. For we walk by faith, not by sight. First Corinthians said the Jews require a sign. When God ever deals with Israel, he deals with them in signs. I hope that you don't live by signs because you're going to be pretty disappointed one of these days. We walk by faith. By faith means that we read the Bible and we believe the Bible and we obey the Bible. We walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be well-pleasing to him. And then this is the verse that I'd like to use tonight. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know... Between the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, and the revelation, there are two aspects, as you know, of the coming of the Lord. There is that that has to do with the church, and that could take place before this building tonight. Never put anything as thin as a piece of India paper between this moment and the time that the Lord is going to come to receive the church unto himself. There's a statement that was in the original Schofield reference edition of the Bible that I wish they had kept in there. In Paul's writings alone, we have the doctrine, the walk, the position, and the destiny of the church. But then there is the revelation. When he comes back to this earth, 
when he comes back and takes the throne of his father David. I wonder if we might turn back to the book of Jeremiah for a moment. I was speaking to the pastor today. There are six triplicates in the Bible, only six. We have holy, holy, holy twice. And then we have the temple, the temple, the temple. And then we have I will overturn, overturn, overturn. But the one I want us to turn to is in the 22nd chapter of Jeremiah. In verse 28, is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Now get this. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. And if you were to read the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the lineage of Joseph, you'll find that Joseph, well, the Kaniah, is uh, Joseph in the lineage of Kaniah. And there was a curse upon all the children that were born to Mary and Joseph. So I might as well say something while I'm talking here tonight. There's only one man in heaven, earth, or hell that can lay claim to the throne of David, and that is the virgin-born son of Mary. All the rest of them had a curse upon them, and the hope for this world is the throne of David. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So there'll be between these... Um, between the rapture and the revelation is a succession of great events. There'll be the gathering together of the saints unto Christ. And oftentimes we sing, Oh, that will, be that will be glory for me, glory for me. For when by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, yes, glory for me. But you know you could also sing that, Oh, that will be glory for him, glory for him. For when by grace he shall look on my face, that will be glory, yes, glory for him because he cannot come under the fullness of his glory until we come in with him, because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And then he's going to take us and present us to the Father. And I can tell you one thing, there'll be no vacant chairs in heaven. You won't get there and say, I wonder who is supposed to be sitting over there. The Father's house is going to be full. And that's a great encouragement to us, I think. And he'll present us to the Father and say, Behold, I and the children that thou hast given me. And you'll be there if you're a believer. And then comes the judgment seat of Christ. May I stop here and say this will not be a general judgment. Every minister's handbook that I've ever seen, and when they have a committal service at the, the grave, graveside service, they always have that they commit this body to the ground. Whenever I have, and I don't have very many funerals anymore, but I would never commit a believer's body to the ground because that ground does not belong, that body is not to the... Um, the grave does not own that body. That body has been redeemed with blood, and that body will be uh, glorified and will be in heaven. So it's not a general judgment. When I was a kid, I used to think that there would be a general judgment. And uh, I used to think of the cemetery, and the Lord was on one side, and the devil on the other, and one for you, and one for me, and two for you, and three for me, and so forth. <laughs> and, uh, but there's no such thing as a general judgment. Now, every believer is subject to a threefold judgment. He has been judged in the past as a sinner. I'll come back to that in a moment. He is being judged in the present as a son in the family. He's going to be judged in the future for his stewardship. He has been judged in the past 
as a sinner. The psalmist said in the 143rd Psalm in verse 2, Enter not into judgment with thy servants, for no man living shall be justified in thy sight. But that was the Old Testament. In the New Testament we have forgiveness in Christ. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, that is the white throne judgment, but is already passed from death unto life. And then we read, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17, the witness of the Holy Spirit, which is the Bible, said, Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. When I see a little girl on the way to Sunday school with a little Gideon Testament, she can read it one way or the other. She can't even read it, but she's carrying it along. If I were to go up and say, May I see that little Testament? And I'd open it up. And I say, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Here's a little girl carrying the witness of the Holy Spirit in her hands. And then um, I love the words of that hymn, No condemnation, blessed word, consider it, my soul. Thy, thy, my sins on Jesus were laid, his stripes have made thee whole. In heaven the blood forever speaks in God's omniscient ear. The saints, like jewels on his breast, Jesus doth ever bear. So Christ has borne the judgment as a sinner. We have been judged as sinners once and for all. All our sins, past, present, and future. You say, not my future sins. Well, all your future sins were future when he died. When he died on him, and he bore all your sins in his body on that tree. But now we're judged as a son in the present. This is not to decide whether we are a child of God or not, because that's already decided. I was speaking to Skip today. I was 18, he was 18 when I came to faith. A woman led me to faith and used John 1, chapter that he came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And I'll never forget that, January 27, 1933. And I went home and I told my mother what had happened. I didn't know what had happened, but I told her that things were going to be different and she knew what had happened. And I went up to, and I kneeled down beside my bed. My bed had a three-seasonal mattress on it. Have you ever slept in a bed with three-seasonal mattress? No spring. <laughs> but I kneeled down, and I'll never forget my prayer. My heavenly Father. And it dawned upon me that God now was my Father. And I'm a member of His family. And you're more closely related to your heavenly Father than you are to your earthly Father. I took a course when I was in college. You don't believe I ever went to college, but I did. I barely got through. But um, they said that uh, you get about 25% from your father and 25% from your mother and the other 50% from your great, your grandparents and so forth. But you're more closely related to your heavenly father than you are to your earthly father. So this is not to decide whether we are or not. This has to do with in Hebrews chapter 12. It has to do with a judgment as a son in the family. I'm just going to turn over and read this. I'm sure that you've read it many times, and you probably know it by memory, if I can find it here. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 to 9. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? This could never have been written in 1997 because there are plenty of kids that are never chastened to the father. Uh, 
Of course, they don't do it now because in school they say, in fact, they've just passed a thing, you shouldn't uh, whip your kids. My father never knew anything about that. Uh, but um, they say if your son comes in with a saw and wants to saw the leg of the piano off, let him alone. He's going to be a carpenter later on, and you might mess him all up. But um, Okay. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye alien-born and not sons. You are professor, but you're not a possessor. He chastens every son that he receiveth. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. Have you ever had any? Have you ever been in God's woodshed? Has he ever laid the rod on you? Well, if he hasn't, be patient, because you're going to get it sooner or later. <laughs> and... Uh, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. But if ye be without chastisement, well off our partakers, then are ye alien born and not sons. And I know what you're thinking right now. You say, I get it all the time. Is there any way that I can miss it? Well, Paul said there was in the Corinthian letter. He said, um, if we would judge ourselves, that is in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, if we would judge ourselves, then we don't have to be judged. For then, but if we don't do it, then uh, when we judge ourselves, then we will not be condemned with the world. You say, I, I do that every night. Just before I go to bed, I get down on one knee, and I say, please forgive me my sins for today. As Billy Sunday used to say, you committed them one by one, brother. Confess them one by one. You know, when you came to faith, the question of your sins didn't even arise. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. But now that we're in the family, he deals with us in the, if we judge ourselves, and there's not much of that going on, if we would judge ourselves, then we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we might not be condemned with the world. Um, there is a way of getting, uh, of being delivered from that kind of a judgment. Uh, I wonder if you remember the Rosenbergs, the atom bomb spies, some of you with older remember them. And they appeared before Judge Kaufman. They were Jewish, and he was a Jewish judge. And uh, they said, we do not want mercy. We want judgment. We want justice. And he said, what they have desired, they have obtained. I hope you'll never say that. I heard about a woman went in to, uh, to get some pictures. And uh, she had had a photographer to take her pictures, and she had the proofs. And she was standing there on the sidewalk, and she looked at those, and she scowled at them, and they scowled back at her. And she said, these pictures don't do me justice. Somebody said, listen, sister, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> but Judge Kaufman was not only a judge, but he was also a father. He had two or three kids. And um, when he went home, if be the head of a house and being the father, he had to exercise a little rule and law at home. When he got home... His wife said, boy, your side of the family really came, came, really came out today. I had baked some cookies for my bridge club, and I told the kids not to touch them. But when I went to get the cookies, the, empty, the jar was empty. And so uh, what's he going to do? Is he going to use the principle of life and death like he did in the courtroom? No, he used the principle of love and discipline. So he had to do that. He had to go in and ch chastise those kids, but not as he did with the Rosenbergs. Uh, I used to go to Hollywood, Florida, and speak every year. I used to like to stay in the house of Agnes Whittison. 
she was a little widow, and her husband was Albert Widdison, who was a very great and a very much used evangelist. About every place I've been, like the West Indies and uh, New Zealand, Australia, I've found those who came to faith under Albert Widdison's ministry. And I used to sit there and eat breakfast, and she'd give me some of Daddy's sermons, and i preach them. If you don't want me to preach your sermons, Skip, don't give me any, because I, I'm a strictly a retailer. Uh, I'm not a wholesaler. I'm not a, everything I know I've learned from somebody else. Might as well be honest with you. I got this from somebody else. But anyway, Mrs. Witt, Mrs. Whittison said, you know, we had three boys. And one evening, Daddy and I had to be away. And because of the nature of the occasion, we couldn't have the boys with us. So we told the boys where their supper was and told them to be good boys and not cut the fool and go to bed at a certain time. And uh, we went on our way. On the way back, we said, boy, I bet that house will be a mess. Three boys left alone in the house alone. They opened the door and they looked and everything was deathly silent inside. And they looked up and they saw this beautiful, expensive, cut cut glass butter dish, broken with the pieces propped up in one another. And right beside it was a little note written with a juvenile hand, Dear Mother and Father, we broke the butter dish. We are very sorry. We have put ourselves to bed without any supper. (laughs) Now let me say, if you have a boy, never put your son to bed without any supper. If you have a girl, that's different. But a boy, never. Because that hydrochloric acid will chew away that stomach and... uh, but what would you do if you had told them not to cut the fool and here you come back and they've broken the beautiful cut class butter dish? You know what I'd do? I'd go up those stairs two at a time. And I'd get up there and I'd take my belt off and I'd play Yankee Doodle on the frying pan. <laughs> no, you couldn't do that. You'd stand there and you'd say, and you could wipe the tears away first, put themselves to bed. They had already judged himself. You couldn't judge him now. You'd say, wake up, son. Wake up. How do you want yours? Medium rare? (laughs) You say, but that's the way God deals with you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because we judge ourselves, we do not have to be judged by him. So um, we have been judged as sinners in the past. We are being judged now as sons in the present. But we are going to be judged for our stewardship in the future. It says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is found in more than one book in the New Testament. It's found in um, Romans. It's found in 2 Corinthians. It's found at the Bema. I think some of you have already been to Corinth. If you've been to Galileo's judgment seat, uh, you've, that was the Bema, the judgment seat, uh, where Paul stood. And um, we must all. Now, the little pronoun we is found 26 times in this chapter always has to do with a believer, not an unbeliever. The unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne judgment as described in Revelation chapter 20, a very awesome chapter, to tell you the truth. But we must all, all believers will appear there. And may I say this, it will not be a home movie. Just not going to run the thing like that. But deeds of greatness as we thought them, he will tell us were but sin. And little acts we had forgotten, he will own were done for him. The word appear here actually means to be manifested without disguise. You know, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And that day is going to decide, the basis of the judgment is why you have done what you have done. 
Think of how much there is done for the pride of self, or pride of a denomination, or pride of church, or something like that. But that day is going to reveal why we have, what we have done, or why we have done what we have done. Um, I used to buy my clothes down the store down in Central Avenue in St. Petersburg at Rutland's Men's Store. And I'd go in and, uh, you know, they have this play, you see, and they put the suit on, and they have these special kind of blue lights that'll make any piece of burlap look good. <laughs> and the salesman say, you know, this suit was made for you. This looks great. And I said, listen, I'm not going to be wearing this suit in, under the light of those blue lights all the time. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, have to lead, it has to stand the test of daylight. So I said, wait just a minute, my wife will be here and I'm going out and I'll step out on the sidewalk and I'll be hanged. That suit looked altogether different when I looked at it outside in the light of sunshine than it did before those blue lights. And I often thought, we need to be careful and we, uh, we need to find out why we have done what we have done. In uh, 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, and I'm reading from Moffat's translation, the hour of reckoning has still to come when the Lord will come to bring dark secrets to the light and to reveal life's inner aims and motives. And then uh, we read that we're going to be judged by fire. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's going to be a judgment. The judgment seat of Christ will be in the light of fire. Now, there are different kinds of fire mentioned in the Bible, as you know. You have uh, in Matthew chapter 3, 11, that uh, when John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I used to take my music lessons in Boston, and, um, and I always liked to go on Mondays if I could because Happy Jack Smith was there in 5 Park Street, and he had a prayer meeting on uh, Mondays. And I always liked Happy Jack. I don't know why, why they call him Happy Jack. He wore a black suit and a black coat and a black tie, and everything was black. But he used to run when he preached, and he would pound the Bible, pound on the Bible. And um, I said, boy, there's a guy that's really filled with the Holy Ghost. And uh, I asked him one day, I said, Happy Jack, um, where do you get this power? He said, I'll tell you if you won't tell anybody. I said, I won't. You know, you're already thinking about who you could share it with. And, uh, he said, if you want this power, you're going to have to tarry for 240 hours. And then God will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I'm sure glad he never asked, I never asked God to baptize me with fire because he may leave here in the tribulation when he's going to baptize the world in fire. So I'm glad I never asked him to do that. But anyway, there are different kinds of fire. And then Peter spoke about a fiery trial that comes to the Lord's people. And in Revelation chapter 20, the lake of, that burns with fire and brimstone. But in the first chapter of the Revelation, in verse 14, we have a description of the Lord Jesus as he is right now. His eyes are like a flame of fire, divine omniscience, able to pierce down through all sham and hypocrisy and put on and find out exactly why we have done what we have done. And uh, then it says that, uh, well, we're going to have to stand uh, before that light. I'll never forget when we were first married, uh, my wife and I were going through Jacksonville, and I had a friend who was in the jewelry business. You know, friends are no good if you don't use them. And, uh, <laughs> so I went to see Mr. Underwood to see about uh, buying a watch for my wife. I thought I'd get a good discount from him. I didn't, but anyway, I got the watch. <laughs> and while we were standing there, there was a thing on the counter. I said, Mr. Underwood, what's that? What, what is that machine? And I knew I opened my mouth too much. 
right then because that's a thing we did we can check diamonds in that my wife already had the ring and i thought it was probably she thought it was a mexican diamond or something and he put that thing in there well it did turn out ok but i thought that machine would test whether it was real or whether it wasn't real and in that day we're going to find out what is real and what is unreal and the bible says there'll be gold silver precious stones everybody here has built been buildings today with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. It's not difficult to find out what that is. Gold in the Bible is the emblem that's emblematic of deity, the new nature that we have. That, that's the only thing that will let us down the test, that which comes from the new nature that we received when we were born into the family of God. Then silver is the metal that is emblematic of our redemption. If you remember in the Old Testament, whenever they were going to count the people, they brought a half shekel of silver, redemption money. The whole tabernacle rested upon redemption, on silver. And uh, that which comes from the gold, the divine nature, on the basis of the silver, the redemptive work of Christ, with an eye single to the precious stones, which has to do with divine glory. We've done that with an eye single to his praise. We'll receive a reward in that day. And then there's wood, hay, stubble. That's cheap. That's bulky. That's surface stuff. We get it in great quantity. And I think you're aware of the fact there's plenty of that in Christian circles today. But the gold, silver, precious stones are expensive. They're small. You have to dig to get it. And it's the quality that counts and not the, uh, not the quantity. And as I quoted before, deeds of merit as we thought them, he will tell us we're but sin. Little acts we had forgotten, he will own were done for him. The one thing that encourages me when I think about this is that everyone shall receive praise of God. God's going to find something in you, in every one of us, that he'll be able to say thank you for what you did for me in that planet of rebellion. And um, he will, we will receive a reward for that which we have earned, and we'll reap that which we have sown. I heard about a big city preacher, not referring to you now, but anyway, a big city preacher. <laughs> and um, he was working hard, and the men... The deacons noticed that he was working hard, and then you get a little edgy. So I said, we feel you ought to have a holiday, and we don't want you preaching all the way through a holiday. I'll tell you this. You know, the average preacher, when he goes on a vacation, he looks up the road, and he says, I can get so-and-so, and I can preach there Wednesday night, and they'll give me $15. And then uh, the next night, he'll be in another town. He can preach there on Sunday and get uh, maybe $50 for Sunday morning and Sunday night. But said, uh, we don't want you preaching through your vacation. We're going to give you an extra check, so when you go in a restaurant, you won't have to study the right-hand column on the menu before you order. Have you ever noticed when you go in a restaurant, you never do buy what you want? You always look over here and look down and see if you get something, and then if it's cheap, then you look over and see if you like it. <laughs> we all do that. He said, we, uh, we don't want you preaching through your vacation. So he promised him that he wouldn't preach went out in the country and got a little place and he was already beginning relaxed. And one day, some of those country people came, two or three of the men came, nervous, because he was a big city preacher. And if you didn't know it, preachers, you know, are made of so, so much different material than the rest of you. But anyway, they were twisting their caps. He said, we have a little church up the road. He said, I know, I've seen it. He said, we don't get much good preaching here. We were just wondering if you could preach us next, next Sunday morning. Well, he couldn't say no, even though he promised the people back in the church that he wouldn't preach. 
So he and his boy went to the church. The door was open. There was nothing sealed in there anyway. And they went in. It was kind of musty. But they looked around and saw a little box over there. Offerings that were offerings. And he reached in his pocket and got 50 cents. And dropped it in the slot and heard it at bottom. And he preached and he was blessed and they were blessed. Said, listen, could you come back tonight? We'll have more people tonight if you could. So he just couldn't say no. He said, I'll be here tonight. So he went back tonight, and after he finished preaching, one of the men went over and had a little key and unlocked that box, and 50 cents dropped out in his hand. He says, always the custom here in the church to give the visiting speaker the offerings of the day. He says, there's not very much, but with it comes our love. And the little boy looked at his daddy, and the daddy looked at the boy, but nothing was said. He accepted graciously. And as they were walking back to where they were staying that night, the little boy said, Daddy, I've just been thinking. If you had put more in this morning, you would have got more out tonight. <laughs> I think one of the most delightful preachers I ever knew was Harold Wildish of Jamaica. I buried him about 12 years ago. But Harold was a great preacher, and I buried his wife about two years ago. But Harold Wildish and uh, Billy Graham were in Montego Bay in Jamaica, and they were swimming, like, together. And Harold said, Billy, his, do you think that at the judgment seat of Christ, your little Carolina mother may get a bigger reward than a world-famous son? Well, you know what Billy said. He was sure she would. But uh, I don't think you ever know the name Howard Kelly. He was a great surgeon in Johns Hopkins uh, University Hospital. Uh, he used to come to Bible school when I was there. He was a terrific speaker. And uh, he'd go, come to Florida and go out and catch rattlesnakes and put them in the bathtub at night because they couldn't crawl out of the bathtub. But uh, he used to like to walk in his vacation time in the hills of Pennsylvania. And uh, one day he was uh, walking in the, car, in the farmhouse and uh, the woman came to the door. And in those days it was perfectly safe to invite somebody into your house. So he asked if he could have a glass of water. And he sat there and he looked and he saw scripture texts on the wall. He knew she was a believer. And she, instead of water, she brought a glass of ice-cold milk and some crackers. And he appreciated and left. But because of the nature, he had a needed surgery, and because of the nature of the surgery, there was only one hospital that could do the work, and that was Howard Kelly at Johns Hopkins University Hospital. So he recognized her immediately, but of course with his doctor's outfit on, she didn't recognize him. He performed the surgery. Have you ever got a hospital bill? How in the world have they ever come up with so many things? I mean, they all these listen. Tylenol, three dollars and a half, something like that. All these things. Any doctors in the crowd tonight? Hope not. But anyway, she said, "I'm an honest woman, but uh, I'll do my best. But I don't think I can pay this." He said, "You're going to. Uh, this is what it is." And uh, when it came the time to her to check out, she got the bill, and underneath was signed, "Paid in full." by a glass of cold milk and some crackers. So deeds of greatness as we thought them, he will tell us where but sin, and little acts we had forgotten, he will own were done for him. I have friends, and I said, one in our little church where I go, a little tiny church. I mean, you have 10, 15, 20 times as many people here tonight as we do in our little church, where my wife has gone tonight. But. Um, there's one fellow there, and I said to him, you know, I'd swap everything I have for half of what you'll get because we just don't. We don't judge now what anybody's doing. But that day will be, and I say it won't be a home movie, but it's going to be honest, 
and we shall be judged. We have been judged as sinners. We are being judged now as sons in the family, and we are going to be judged for our stewardship in the future, the judgment seat of Christ. All right, thank you for allowing this old man, 83 years old, to come and speak to you. I hope it hasn't been too boring. And, uh, I know you have a major prophet here all the time, and he wanted to have a minor prophet here, so that's why he invited me to come. All righty. Danny, you want to come up? Thank you very much. Oh, I want to say another word. He mentioned, uh, Skip mentioned that I've been to Israel 149 times. Next May, he's going to take another group. I saw his slides today, absolutely fantastic. I've never seen as many beautiful, more beautiful slides. And if you want a real, I'll guarantee you'll have a new Bible if you'll go. You'll read a new newspaper. You'll read a new Time magazine. And go next May. This price that he has, I don't see how he can do all he's going to do for the amount of money that you're going to spend. So I would definitely, I have a letter in my pocket um, some, that I'm, uh, I had a letter the other day from Jamaica. Uh, some people that want to go, but I'm not taking any more groups. I've had my fill of it now, even though Skip thinks I ought to go one more time. And John Galbraith, who's a billionaire, lives in our building, says I ought to go up to 200, but I won't do that. But... Um, I'm going to write to these people in Jamaica and say, go with Skip Isaac. And I'd urge you, if you've never been, to borrow the money or do something, steal it. No, or not. No. <laughs> but uh, go next May. Plan to go. And I'll guarantee you'll come back a, a, a new person. It's great. Thank you, Skip. Thank you, Roy. Thank you. What an inspiration. What an inspiration. Every time I go to hear anybody speak, I always take notes because I know that I won't be able to retain everything and I like to go over what I hear. And I've got three pages of notes tonight to go over uh, tonight and this week. What a, what a blessing. And uh, since Roy said he borrowed this from somebody else, I figure I've got another message to preach here. <laughs> Would the worship group please come? Father, thank you tonight for this opportunity to hear your servant. He's blessed so many around the world for so long. As an associate evangelist and friend of Dr. Graham, and, and just, Lord, the, the groups he's taken to Israel, the churches he's spoken with, mission groups. And, Father, thank you that we're blessed that uh, you've allowed Roy to come and share with us about the judgment of God, past, present, and future on our lives. Lord, I pray that our lives would be found pleasing to you and that we would live to please you, Lord. 
And that would be our aim, as Paul said in Corinthians, that we might please you by life or by death, by being present or being absent. That we'd seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and and let everything that you deem important to be added to us. We're yours, Lord. Thank you again for the encouragement. In Jesus' name.